Hello, and my name is Pete Rushmer, and I'm your host today of A Half Dozen Things podcast. A Half Dozen Things is a podcast for business owners just like you. Whether you're an underdog hungry for success, or you're already smashing it, but want to continue to level up, we are here each week for you to get insight and learning from the very best in the business. No fluff, no BS, and no self-proclaimed gurus talking about how easy business or life is. I'm joined today by Keith Gray. Um, Keith, absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. We we're introduced by our mutual uh, mutual acquaintance, mutual friend, uh, Mr. Vickers, um, who is also one of the fleet geeks. So we've got our second podcast. Uh, obviously, this is going on to the Half Dozen Things podcast where I get to interview uh, subject matter experts. But Fleet Geeks is uh, where the team, uh, myself, Mike and Jamie, we talk about all things transport related. At some point you ought to come on that with us as well. Okay, yes. Uh, but that's a, yeah, that's a good yeah. crack. But Keith, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, I know you and Mike work together at um, what was the FTA, um, uh, is now Logistics UK. Are you able to give me a bit of an introduction to, to you for the listeners, Keith? But tell us a bit yeah, about yourself. Hey. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to be here, Pete. Thanks. Yeah, so um, I worked at FTA as was for about 12 years. And for the last six of them, I was general manager of the training business, uh, which is obviously a commercial arm of, of the trade association. Uh, and yeah, I was Mike Vickers' boss. And as, as much as you ever can be the boss of a group of trainers, because they're a sort of unique bunch, really. So yeah, we'll maybe get into that. But uh, yeah, he's top trainer, top guy, Mike Vickers. So yeah, a lot of time for him. So it'd be an asset to you, Mike. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to know what's in the water at the FTA because Mike looks really young for his age and you look really young for your age as well. I'm assuming you do anyway. Well, you don't know how old I am, do you? No, that's true. I'd be 23, couldn't I? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. No, that's fair enough, to be fair. Um, and it's rude to ask, so I'm not going to. <laughs> I didn't offer, did I? So, yeah. No, no, exactly. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just leave that one hanging. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, the Trade Association is a unique place to work. It is a good place to work if you're coming into the industry, because you do see um, a really broad spectrum of uh, operators, uh, different sectors, you know, they're often wearing the, the sort of two hats. You've got the policy side, um, legislation coming up, dealing with government, and you've got the other side, the commercial, as any commercial organisation, you know, has to make money. So there's sort of that duality. Um, yeah, I used to call it schizophrenia, but in my better times, I call it duality. And I quite like that. I think that was what you always liked was that sort of, you know, it wasn't always what was good for the members, it wasn't always good for a commercial training business and vice versa you know yeah, no, definitely, definitely, and we're gonna we're gonna come on to that. So we've got we've got six areas which Keith's gonna gonna speak to us about today, which I'm really really excited about. Um, you've got we're gonna talk a bit about how the trade association works, and then we're gonna talk about uh, statutory and non-statutory training, uh, including quasi-statutory. So I'm interested to hear a bit more about that. Um, the transport manager CPC qualification and and training beyond that and then we're going to talk about instructional design principles because i think that's what you've since you've left the fta that's like your bag now isn't it that and dangerous goods 
Um, we're going to talk a bit about lifelong learning. You, uh, Keith suggested it and said it may be a bit tenuous, but actually not at all because I'm a I'm a big book lover, so I'll be interested to uh, oh, interested to oh, compare no. libraries for sure. And then we're going to talk a bit more about your business now, the DGSA Academy as well um, later on. So yeah, we've got six key areas for us to focus on on this conversation, and hopefully uh, we'll we'll have plenty to keep uh, listeners interested as well because we've got a broad range of stuff to talk about. Um, <clears throat> So you left the FTA. Let's just do like a quick bring people up to date. So since you've left the FTA, what have you been up to, Keith? And then um, we'll move on to the first thing, mate. Yeah, so I'd probably now describe myself in this sort of uh, year and a half since I left. I'd say I'm probably an instructional designer who knows about dangerous goods. Sort of where those two things meet. And I know it's a bit of a visual thing, like a Venn diagram, but where those two things meet, I think that's where I'll probably sit. So probably pretty niche for our industry, but... I've got a bit of a broader experience and I've always been in training, certainly in the last sort of, you know, uh, 10 years, certainly always been in training and particularly vocational training. So job related training, tra transport manager, CPC, driver, CPC, ADR, DGSA, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, but now I do my own thing as a freelance instructional designer, freelance trainer to do with dangerous goods. That's probably where I'm at. But yeah. And have you found, have you found that transition to working for yourself? Uh, well, weeks like this week are, uh, are difficult because where you haven't got as much work, you say, oh, I should be working up because you've worked every day, you know, since I left school. You're like, when you haven't got a day's work, you're sort of a bit uh, in that mindset of being a salary bodge. You're like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to pay them a little bit. It's fine. It's just peaks and troughs with being freelance. And then, you know, another week's time, I'll be like, oh, I ain't got a thousand a day. So that, that takes a bit of getting used to. Yeah. Um, but if I'm honest, I like the autonomy, you know, I've managed people for a number of years and, you know, if I, if I gnaws anything up now, it's only down to myself, really. I can't put the blame at anyone else at all. Not Absolutely. the whole world, yeah. Absolutely. Take, take all the responsibility. Yeah. Okay. No, top man. Okay. So let's talk about the first area, which is about how a trade association works. So I'm really interested in this because... I've never worked for a trade association. I, I understand the RHA and then you've got what was the FTA is now Logistics UK. Yeah. Um, you've had quite a bit of experience by the sounds of it, a long period of time working at uh, the FTA. What What is it? How does it work? What What? I suppose there's like this, like you were saying before, this push and pull of the commercial element and the, um, the, sort, of, uh, the sort of governmental sort of side of policy and that kind of thing. Yeah, so... If you look at the, the two big trade associations, and I only really know these, one of them very well, the other just because they're the other big one, RHA in our industry. Um, but you've obviously got the ones for the freight forwarding industry. All trade associations pretty work in the same way. Like, so um, FTA is probably 130 odd years old. RHA is 90 odd years old. But the principal aim hasn't really changed in all of that time, and that is to really represent their members and try and influence government uh, to benefit their members. So either to initiate membership uh, legislation that will help them or even slow down legislation. So ones like, um, you know, the tax on fuel would be a common one. You know, you, you know, they can't get them to reduce it by 5p a litre, but if they've slowed it down for two years or had no increases, then that equates to a lot of money across a lot of businesses. So yeah. that sort of thing. And, and I think um, really when you see... When you see people from the trade associations on the news, you think, oh, that's, that's what they reckon, that's their opinion, but it's not. They're, you know, they're, they're democratic organisations and they'll have regional councils, they'll have national councils, they'll table all this sort of stuff at 
the, the sort of radar of legislation, if you like, what's our policy position on it? It's members that sort of dictate that. Yeah. Um, and then I suppose from that over the years, um, and being that proximity to legislation, um, they're well placed to sort of come up with other offerings. So tachograph analysis, when tacos came in, vehicle inspections is probably one of the oldest FTA business units. Um, so they'll do safety inspections or check the checker, but you know all that sort of stuff and then um uh, and ultimately consultancy and training and that was the bit i was you know responsible for i suppose at fta um, but they they all are a spin-off of that original aim if you like the, the representation part yeah absolutely absolutely fascinating and i suppose what what sort of split of income do they they does the business look at based on the sort of trade association association like the members side and then the training side is that is that sort of business element what's propping them up as an organization to help them um help them employ people help them deliver on their outcomes and that kind of thing yeah exactly so it's it's non-profit making which although you know they are you know they're commercial organizations but they, everything that they do earn does go back into the organisation because of their sort of um, status, I suppose. But yeah, I, I, I couldn't probably, I wouldn't, you know, be wrong with me to give the exact split. But I'd say that um, it's probably more the commercial side now that's sort of paying for a lot of the representation activities. I think if you did it just on membership alone, um, I don't know whether it could, it, it would stand on its own two feet, but it'd have to choose what it wanted to do. A bit more carefully, probably be the best answer. Yeah, great. Good. Okay, cool. So um, I understand a bit more about the FTA now. So tell, tell me a bit more about the second area that we were going to discuss, which is the training budget, statutory versus non-statutory training, including quasi-statutory. First yeah. of all, I think you'd, I need you to explain that uh, for me. Uh, well, that's a bit of a that's a me term, really. I don't know if that's an industry term. You missed out on it. But what I mean by statutory training, statutory qualifications. Uh, stuff that's required by law so you obviously do a lot of that there's a lot of stuff that you know transport manager cpc's requirement of a no license uh, driver cpc adr dgsa all these things they they'd be statutory qualifications they underpin areas or particular pieces of legislation um but even broadly you can think about it in you know gas fitters electricians all of those sort of thing and then you'd probably have things that are non-statutory and I know you, because when we spoke before, I know you hate the phrase soft skills because it sort of demeans them a little bit, doesn't it? They're all important. They're all important, but they, um, they're, they're things that are not required by law. And so thereby, when when people have, or companies have to tighten their belts, they're often the first thing that gets pushed to the side, in my experience, you know. So, mm-hmm. And then what I meant really by quasi or quasi-statutory was the likes of training for fours. So schemes where... Actually, they seem to be under the banner of statutory, but they're not because the scheme's not statutory. You've only got to do that training because the scheme is a requirement of the scheme, I suppose. Um, now, you know, whatever you think of falls and there's all the whys and wherefores politically and all that, I won't get into that. But um, but I think where, when you say, um, uh, when falls say, oh, you've got to do that training, that's fine as long as anyone could provide that training. Because if you would become the people who set the standard and the people who are the only people who can deliver it, then I think you've created a bit of a monopoly and that's when people have something to take issue with. So that's what I really mean by quasi-statutory, statutory, yeah. I suppose. 
That, that makes sense. That makes sense. So the a lot of the fours uh, fours trainings, we 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 deliver fours. Fours was always a bit of a, a bit of a funny one for for me with the business because the it doesn't really align with the principles. No, let me let me get this right. <clears throat> the the premise of it aligns with my principles, which is to improve road safety. Yeah. Uh, and to improve levels of professionalism in fleet operators completely aligns with with my vision of what um, fleet operations should be and what businesses should aspire fleet operators should aspire to do um, I think there's um, a, a lot of room for improvement in the way that it's been executed and the way that um, it's uh, <clears throat> the way that it's been implemented um, and hope, hopefully that's going to improve over time. But I think the the principle of uh, additional, like you say, quasi training, which is a requirement of the standard, um, certainly around like safe urban driving and, and 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 those kinds of things. I think that's I think that's to the benefit, not the detriment of of fleet operators. Yeah. Um, but I do think um, I think you know we we. I kind of got into it kicking and screaming because I had a couple of clients who wanted it for, you know, the, the, the clients that wanted it because um, it was good for their business. Um, and if it's good for their business, then it's good for us, if that makes sense. That's that's kind of my perspective is, well, someone else is going to take their money to help them get that standard. So, um, you know, I'm, I may as well, I may as well help them because we've got the competence and the ability to be able to help support them. Um you know, but then you know, I have my challenges. Sorry, I know this is turning into a me monologue. No, not at all. Me sounding like sounding like I'm axe grinding, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I really think like the ISO standards are fantastic when you implemented properly. I think it gives yeah. businesses the opportunity to um, demonstrate their quality and the investment that they have in their brand and their business and their processes, um, and it you know it's a commitment for them. But at the same time that. I've had a really eye-opening experience with one of our waste operators who went for ISO 9001, 14001, and 45001 by one of the accrediting the the accrediting uh, body um, who charged them, you know, an awful awful lot of money, um, you know, over a thousand pound a day um, for yeah. nine days worth of auditing and only really turned up for two two and a half hours on yeah. about about a quarter of the actual days that were were, were quoted um, and I really did feel they got value for money from that point of view um, so I found that very very frustrating but it was also eye-opening to see that it isn't just fours it isn't just fours actually there's it feels like there's a bit of a, a monopoly happening across um, some of the some of the ways that this is being delivered or these standards are being delivered yeah, no, that's right. I think um, <clears throat> I won't mention, but the big sort of um, ISO accreditation bodies um, we've implemented, or as FTA implemented ISO 9001, and you soon start to realise actually this isn't about how good we are as a business, it's how good we measure our own processes. So the things they always say about ISO 9001 is, you know, you could, you could have the, the world's fourth best widget but, you know, as long as you make that widget to where you said you're going to make that widget, that, you know, that's, that's all you're measured against. But I think the point is that the act of actually putting all your processes in place help you to then interrogate them and to make them better, don't they? You know, you've got to start somewhere with it. So it's, but I do I'll get your point completely there. Yeah, it's, it's an industry in itself, isn't it, accreditation, so...
Absolutely, yes. You have to excuse some of the background noise. I am actually on site, so you can hear you can hear HGVs in the background. No doubt, but it all adds it all adds to the authenticity of the podcast. Very legit. So, yeah, that's yeah, awesome. exactly, exactly. Here, here I am. There's no, no other options. The window's wide open, and uh, we need to get some air in. But it does mean we can hear we can hear some noisy diesels polluting, um, polluting the planet. But the Euro Six, it does. It's all good. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think. Um, I think I could axe grind all day about about the standards. Like you say, it doesn't necessarily make you a better business, but I think it does demonstrate a level of commitment, doesn't it? Yeah. I think that yeah. it, it dem- what it does demonstrate is it doesn't necessarily, like you say, say we've got the best product or service, but we've got a level of commitment to go. Actually, we really analyze the way we do things. And I think I think if you take that sort of plan, do, check, act type. Yeah process and you apply it particularly to safety for example i think um, that, that can only be a good thing for the people in, in an organization as well but I, th- I think i don't know we could go off on a whole nother tangent on the podcast here but actually and I've, I, I see it we are we are a supplier to um one of the trade associations who have got uh, the, the accreditation i've got to be a bit careful with 9001 sometimes the process can overtake anything else it's sometimes yeah. a challenge yeah and that that's you know we're going through 9001 ourselves because we want to we again we want to deliver the earned recognition for dvsa and that's a yeah. prerequisite for that that we have that's to have ISO it, yeah. 9001 and it's been a it's been a good process for us as a business to go through um but like you say I don't think it's improved the quality of what we do. Um, and I think that sometimes you can almost get bogged down in following a process when sometimes diverting from the process just to get a good outcome for, an, for, for a person is, is the right thing to do as well. Not, not everything fits in boxes all the time. Yeah, and I think if I haven't sort of been through it, if I was speaking to myself at start or are you going through it, you'd probably say, always be asking, do we need that? Is that just because, you know, someone who's done it before says we need that? Or does the standard actually say we need that particular document? Because you can just create this massive bloated thing. You, you, you sometimes do things for the sake of it and think, what value does that actually bring, that particular process or check or whatever it is? You know, it's, bit, it's better to sort of um, add things, like cooking, I suppose. You can add things, but it's harder to take stuff away, isn't it? So um, I'll yeah. definitely have that. I'll try and do it sort of as a framework to start with, yeah. Definitely, and the value, the value is often in what you don't do rather than what you do do. Um, so, yeah, no, fantastic. Right, let's move on to the third area, which is the transport manager's professional development. Uh, it's something that I'm very passionate about, um, and uh, certainly the Fleet Geeks is is been created by us to be able to tackle uh, ongoing professional development for transport managers. Um, are you able to just tell me a bit more about what you think around what a transport manager's professional development should look like beyond their statutory transport manager CPC training? Yeah, well, this might turn into a bit of a discussion as well, this one, because I haven't got any hard and fast thoughts on it other than um, deliver transport manager CPC. I really like the qualification, transport manager CPC. That's what I'd call like a benchmark qualification. You know, it's... um, uh, it gives people a really good grounding in the um, sort of uh, bedrock of transport management. So O licensing, driver's hours, driver licensing, um, uh, maintenance. So it's got those sort of pillars. Uh, and then it touches on awareness things like international transport, 
uh, even livestock, stuff like that. But they're not a massive element in the exam. It's the things that people always remember. How long can you take a horse for you need all that business? But and uh, but really, it's from the point that if you get this qualification, you could go into any of those subsections, couldn't you, of industry, uh, and be their transport manager. So things like dangerous goods do come up, and, and probably rightly so. Um, I, 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 what I think is in terms of once you've got the CPC, what to do. Um, my only opinion on it is I think once they get past that point, that because that's a benchmark, everything past that point should be individualised. So it, it's it's really from then on, it's what does an individual need to know for their role and whether they want to go with their career. And I think, you know, training now, it can be a bit more bite-sized. What I don't think can, is another qualification on top of it. And, and I'll say that not just, you know, out of opinion, because we created as an FTA fleet manager qualification that sat above it. But I think it just was just too structured. And um, so I'm interested to hear what you think on, on that, really. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, um, I've got quite sort of firm beliefs around that. I, um, so I went off and did uh, recently, fairly recently, I did, I'd never got a degree. I'd never got a level six qualification and it really sort of bugged me. Um, so it was a scratch that needed itching and I went and did what, what's called the MCRQ level six diploma in health and safety. And um, it's like a home study. You do it via assignment and it's very, very structured. And I, yeah. I, I did really enjoy it. I got some skills from it and I enjoyed the learning. It was very real world. I'm glad I selected that rather than the NEBOSH, which is where, where you have exams to take. Yeah. Um, but I've got a really, really strong belief that I don't ever intend for us to go out and create a level five or level six qualification for transport or fleet people. Yeah. Um, because I believe that, I, I believe that learning is lifelong. That's, that's a fundamental belief that we are always evolving. We are always learning yeah. and nothing, nothing grips my shit more than transport managers who go, well, I've been doing this for 30 years and I know more than you do. Um, uh, because there's the old, my, I've got an old saying, which is you could be working as a transport manager for 30 years, but if you've done the same year 30 times, you've only got one year of experience. If you've not been open and minded enough to be able to take on and learn new stuff, you've only got one year of experience, but you've done it 30 times. Yeah. Um, or you could have 30 years of open minded learning, development, seeking out opportunity, asking questions, those kinds of things. So, and I think, I think there are some professionals in the field who probably don't ask enough questions and do, uh, we're going to get noisy again anyway, um, and, and do think that, um, you know, they've got this, you know, knowledge that is sort of, it, essentially <coughs> that they don't need to know anything else. And I think that it's vital that people have access to bite-sized ongoing learning. So, and that, one of the things that we set up with Fleet Geeks was that with the podcast, we'd have Jamie, Mike and I, we've all got our own knowledge and experience levels. Um, and we wanted to be able to essentially create like searchable content, which was like educational. So almost like a library of content, which is yeah. how do I do it? How do I check a driver's license properly? It was one of our most recent ones. Uh, we did one recently on cabotage. We did. And they're sort of like five to 15 to 30 minute bite-sized searchable 
bits of content where people don't necessarily have to listen to podcast one to podcast 100 they can just pick the stuff that they want to know yeah and it's like kind of accessible and that's that's kind of my vision for that and also I think because the transport manager role in particular is so broad that people can go into lots of varying types of businesses with different specialisms that lots of transport managers will experience things in very different ways and actually one of the one of the things that I wanted to that we're in the process of creating at the moment is like what I call a peer-to-peer mentoring type group so you've you've got essentially transport managers mentoring each other and sharing challenges and overcoming challenges together um, and sort of pooling this mindset because I'm a member of a lot of the Facebook groups on uh, for transport managers there's lots and lots of uh, social media groups and stuff and sometimes when you've just got the written word for communication you kind of end up in this like handbag type aggravated situation where the 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 tone the tone and the personality and the message is totally lost because it's written word and sometimes it can just uh, escalate sort of rapidly and people can appear being rude and I'm sure they don't mean to be rude I I you know I always have a fundamental belief that everyone intends to do good and and means to do good (laughs) how wrong how wrong I may well be Um, but I think getting people together and, and sort of sharing experience and sharing their knowledge, I think is uh, is a really vital part of professional development as well. In in a structured way, but not in a structured learning way. In a as in you provide structure to enable that 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 mentoring or or that those conversations to take place in a structured environment. But actually, what is discussed is really natural. Yeah, so I think that's where the magic happens. That's where the learning happens. And I think pulling that back to training. I think that's probably one of the big problems with school tra- school school learning versus adult learning is that we don't give enough uh, credit or time for that experience to come out. It's it's uh, adult training can sometimes be like school learning where where kids haven't got experience, life experience to share, and all the rest of it. So it's a case of here's the content, pin back your ears, and and I think it it does it a big disservice because. Um, you know, like you say, a lot of people have got experience and they want to share it, they want to be heard, and, and you have to make room for that, definitely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, I think it's um, yeah, it's a really, really good opportunity for people to learn. What what sort of development have you done yourself? What have you sort of seeked out to do, Keith? Um, well, yeah, so just before I explain that, I um, I was interested in what you said before about, you know, being a lifelong learner. I think a lot of trainers are lifelong learners, but I always like to test that myself because I've recruited a lot of trainers over the years. And one of the questions that I would always put in place is, what have you done in the last 12 months for your own professional development? Now, I wasn't really bothered what it was, to be honest with you, but I just didn't want to hear the answer, nothing, because that didn't show me that sort of growth mindset. I wanted to know, so even if it was how many junctions on the M25 and why is there so many or so little, I'm not, you know, it's more about um, a sort of growth mindset. Yeah, you're right. So um, since I left uh, FTA, I've done my NEBOSH, I've done instructional design diploma. Um, before I left, I did Lean Six Sigma, that burnout. So I like, I like the process improvement. That got me into thinking about system thinking and that's a rabbit hole in itself but really good about sort of bottlenecks in processes and but to be honest I'm, I'm, I suppose I've described myself as a situational learner in that I only learn stuff or I learn the stuff I need to know for this situation I'm in so 
at the minute I'm sort of creating my own little LMS so I'm, I'm sort of genning up about that but if we're going on holiday to Spain in July I'll be genning up on a few words to say we're in Spain you know I don't want to don't want an A-level in Spanish but I'll just knowing enough so I don't know if that is a thing a situational learner but I've definitely found myself as I've got older I'm less interested in formal academic qualifications for the sake of it because but a lot of some people do love that they'll just collect vocational qualifications but now I'm getting a little bit older a bit more relaxed about it I'm a bit more sort of pick and choose things and what whatever floats my boat because ultimately training is all about relevance isn't it? and the more you enjoy stuff the more you're going to you know, give to our things. So. Keith, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Relevancy, relevancy is everything. And I think, um, you know, we're all very time poor now, you know, and yeah. um, like, I think, I think, I, I actually think the whole concept of learning needs to be reconsidered because we need to know what's relevant to us now. What, like you say, in situationally, what, what do I need to know right now for me to give the best possible outcome? at this stage of of where i'm at in this position and the, the the sort of old school formal way of like battering your brain for three years at university to to give yeah. yourself knowledge which you you may or may not need in the future you know obviously you develop core skills around that as well which is fantastic because you learn to be able to research and uh, you learn to be able to articulate yourself in the, in the way that you present your assignments and those kinds of things. Yeah. But I think once you've gone past that level, it's all about, well, so what? What, 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 what do I need to know? Um, <clears throat> and again, that's why, that's why I'm a really big fan of, of non-formal type, um, you know, peer-to-peer type learning because you can essentially go, I have this problem, how do I fix it? And then all of a sudden, if you're with a group of people, you've got 10 different opinions around how they'd go about it. But of those 10 opinions, there's probably three or four, there's probably a couple of contrasting opinions, there's maybe three or four real good experiences. You go, oh, do you know what, I can try that. I hadn't thought of that because everyone thinks differently. Yeah. And I love that dynamic of how I know that I have certain preferences, so I learn and think in a certain way. And that gives me blind spots, you know, that yeah. gives me real, That's real biased. blind spots. So therefore, if I surround myself with people who either know more than I do or think in a totally different way to how I do, I can create better learning outcomes myself because I get the opportunity to be able to learn from, from other people vicariously because they, they experience things in a different way to how I do. Hi, it's Pete from Flagship Partners. We're really proud to sponsor a Half Dozen Things podcast. At Flagship Partners, we take road safety really seriously and we're your road safety partnership. We help transport companies with compliance and training across their businesses, including first aid, driver CPC and other transport management services. So if your fours accredited or you want to improve your operator compliance risk score, Give flagship partners a call today. Yeah, and it's all there's all there's value to all of that. It's just that people uh, tend to like a currency. They like to like a badge. And you know, you've probably heard of open badges, which is a big thing where people can um, still get some sort of achievement. They can put that onto. They do a LinkedIn course. They can put that badge onto their profile and stuff like that. So they're their recognition of, of maybe less formal training and that, that's a big thing but people still do like the cachet of qualifications but 
having dealt with, I won't say which one, but having dealt with a few awarding organisations, big ones, if you think, oh, well, we, we should really have a qualification, it really fill this gap, and, you know, we've had that conversations with them. The first thing they'll sit down and do, and you think these are educational organisations, they do GCSEs, A-levels, the rest of it, but the first thing they'll always ask you is, how much is it going to be worth in exam fees? Because if you're not meeting a 50 grand benchmark, then forget it. You need to think somewhere else to do. You know, so, so to get to 50 grand, how many candidates do I need to put forward? And that, that, that's, that's the test, really, before you, the conversation goes any further. So take from that what you will. We're back into the, you know, accreditations and <laughs> schemes and everything, all industries in themselves, aren't they? So. It's, really, it's really challenging, isn't it? Because then how, how do you demonstrate the credibility of the learning? And I suppose, I suppose the only credibility you can give it is in the way that we're able to articulate and communicate with each other in, in the way that we've, you know, developed our knowledge and understanding. But I don't know about you, you know, I can't think of anything worse. Um, you know, a really good example, in, from a transport legislative point of view, there is reams and reams of information that you can just sit and read. Yeah. Um, but when we talk about relevancy, what I mean by that is it's like, how how is that how is that in the world that I operate? What what are those what are those things that are going to really really impact me? And of those, you know, fifty pages of A four bits of reading, there might be only one or two bits that are really going to really impact me. I need to get to them fast because otherwise I'm just wasting my time. Um, but the, I think the challenge with that is that you can't certificate or accredit it can you but and that's that's the that's the push comes to there's a challenge there i think that's the trade-off yeah that, that's mm. exactly it you're getting the right stuff but you're not going to have a certificate for it necessarily or it's not going to be an accredited certificate but do you as an individual feel we're a better place to discuss that deal with it make that decision you know i think the world will catch up but we're these institutions don't forget have been around for hundreds of years, haven't they? You know, awarding organisations, universities. Universities are still sort of pressing the degree, degree, degree. Mm. Uh, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. But then then I, I sort of think a bit more about flagship partners. And, and I'm just spinning wheels whilst we're talking because I find it a fascinating conversation, actually. I hope people listening find it fascinating. As a business, flagship are accredited to deliver driver CPC training or whatever the correct term is. We're not yeah. approved or accredited. Yeah, yeah, we're an approved yeah. centre. We're an approved centre to deliver the SILT Transport Manager CPC training. Yeah. Uh, we're approved to deliver first aid training. So we've got we've met all these requirements. So actually, if I go, do you know what? This constitutes half an hour of learning. And I've started to do this, actually, for some of the webinars that we run. Do you know what? That is a structured piece of learning. I know it's half an hour, but I've had someone come in, they've set a learning outcome, they've had a discussion, um, people will have taken from it what, what they've needed to take from it, and we've achieved this, you know, we've achieved this learning outcome. I'm going to offer a half-hour CPD certificate for it. Yeah. Do you know what? I feel it's not accredited, it's not, it's not anything else, but as an approved training centre for a range of different bodies. Yeah, I feel we're well positioned to be able to offer people that if we if we choose to, but at the same time, and but I understand that better than probably whoever the current CPD awarding organisation are. I can't even remember who they well, are. There's, but... there's a few of them, isn't there? And that's again, that's another industry. 
So you sit down with these people and they'll say, well, we'll come in and we'll have a look at all your course content. We'll have a look at it. And based on duration or what level we think it is, you can get half half of this, now for that, three points for that, five points for that. And we'll charge you for it. We're not going to bring any value to it other than say, well, we've looked at it and we're going to give it this many points. So why not give it your own point system, you know, because where does it end? <laughs> just... and, and that's exactly it, isn't it? If I go, actually, that's half an hour and there's been you know, a couple of hours worth of design and, uh, and and thought has gone into the process of that. And actually we take the learner on a half an hour journey from suggesting an idea to creating a learning outcome. And we hit this these different types of um, learning experience and learning styles. So we feel like we've caught people when they've, they've had a good outcome for that half an hour of investment. Yeah, I don't see, I don't see what, what's wrong. Anyway, we've massively yeah, digressed. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm scrabbling now. Right, this is your specialism, instructional design principles. Um, yeah, so... I'll, talk I'll to stop, me a bit about that. What, what stop, is that? Subheading that, I'll say, you know, why when it comes to designing training courses, why thinking often trumps doing. Because we live in an age where it's all just do it, fail fast, fail for break move fast break things all this tosh that you hear in there and I'm, it works for a lot of businesses i'm sure but i don't really think it works for training and learning particularly so in the last sort of few years long you know before i left um, fta um i think the quality of the training experience does come from the instructional design elements and, and particularly for adult learners making that as sort of learner centered as possible based on their experiences so I'll sort of start this by saying, you know, typically a course would be created something like this, not always the way, but you'll have stuff that you want to deliver, whether it be a syllabus, whatever it is, and or you'll have a subject matter expert and you'll, you'll pass that or sit them with a, a course developer or knock up assets in the way of PowerPoints or articulate storyline, whatever it is, you'll create a test. And then often you'll go, oh, we need objectives and they'll get backfitted. They'll get retrofitted to the whole thing because we talked about these things. What do we say they've got to achieve? And hopefully that will tally up with a test. And because there's a pressure on internal L&D functions and external training providers that everything you do has to be worth doing, there's often a time critical thing on this. Um, and so, yeah, so... I'll, so I'll hold that against how maybe a course would be developed if it was done from an instructional design perspective. And that would probably be something like you would create learner personas to start with. You'd say, right, who is our audience? Okay, so, so Pete, yeah, he, he's been involved in marketing and sales and he's got a good health and safety back. So this stuff's going to be easy for Pete. This stuff's going to be more difficult. Has Pete got family commitments, so he's not going to have loads of time to do it. So you're building these like personas out, like you would for sort of marketing avatars, I suppose, which is some people might be aware of. You build these out, and you can make them as simple or as complicated as you like, but like anything, the more you put into it, the more value they become. Uh, and they're not a thing that you create and then just leave them there and move on to the next stage. You bring them all the way through. So as you're creating the evaluation, you're saying, well, would they find that an easy question or hard? What would they think of that? Would they find that too preachy? You know, you're using it as you move through the process. Um, and then once you've done the learner personas, you would probably um, create learning outcomes. So you'd really say, you know, what do we need this person to, to, to know in the job to make them better at their job? 
what do they need to know if they need to pass an exam? But when you get to the higher levels of evaluation, you're looking at changing behaviours. So, so actually not just pass a test, but what are they going to take back into the workplace? Um, and then ultimately, you've got the highest sense of uh, evaluation, which is what results we're looking to achieve. You know, from a business point of view, if we had a particular KPI, how are we going to move that needle? What would we need these people to be able to do to be able to move that needle? Um, so you, you spend a lot of time thinking about those. Now, when you do um, learning outcomes, learning objectives, whatever you call them, um, you, if you've ever, you've delivered a few courses and you repeat in your time, yeah? if you ever have learning objectives at the start, people are just like, they're just not <laughs> interested. They're like, yeah, all right, I know I've got a toilet, you know, where the toilet is and all that, but um, you're telling me about stuff that I don't know what that stuff is yet, so how can I know what the objectives are? I don't think they're best placed in a course, they're best placed for the designing of the course. If you, those objectives are kept to one side, as long as the course creates scaffolding, we call it, which basically steps the learner through it, they will achieve those objectives. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the thinking of instructional design is, is done at the front end. And then the rest of it is the same, the development process. But it's the step that often gets missed out, is that, that hard thinking, because mm -hmm. you want to get on and you want to have something tangible. And it's easier to knock up 50 PowerPoint slides than it is to do that hard thinking about who's going to be on the course, what do we need them to learn, what, you know, all the rest mm -hmm. of it. So, so that's where it sits. So often a step that gets missed out. Um, if I explain it to people, they normally go, so what, you don't, don't you do PowerPoint? Yeah, do, do, do PowerPoint, but they're different hats. You could be the subject matter expert, you could be the instructional designer, you could be the developer, but you just make sure you wear different hats at different stages of process, really. Um, but that's, that's it. To, I suppose if we're going to simplify it, I'd say it's to, it's got to be meaningful that you, you really, the ultimate aims are delivered, um, but like most things, they take a bit of hard thinking to start yeah. with. Yeah. I love, I love, I love that philosophical approach to. Um, yeah, it's part of psychology. You know, I know you've got an interest in all that, haven't you? I have, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's interesting because you know I'm, I'm sort of listening to you, and I relate it back to my own experiences. I think I'm very action as a person. I I know that one of my shortfalls is it's a it's a blessing and a curse at the same time, and that is that I'm very action focused. So I'm always jumping in at the deep end and learning how to swim later but sometimes you know I read things and you think if you make sure that you're going in the right direction you can get there often a lot quicker over time and a lot more efficiently and effectively and sometimes and I get really frustrated one of my big pet peeves with trainers particularly particularly who have used to bulking out a seven hour driver cpc yeah. course yeah basically telling people shit they don't need to know yeah <laughs> you know um because they used to, they wanted to bulk courses out um they need to keep the clock ticking and also they, they want to be the smartest person in the room a lot of the time but actually training is outcome driven and and when you when you break it down as you've just explained with like the results what are the results what are the behaviors we can start to think about things which are far more meaningful to organizations yeah. around how do we build better cultures you know safety you know i'm a firm believer safety isn't in a risk assessment it isn't in a policy or procedure it's on yeah. it's in it's in the actual work that's happening out there it's in that and it's not the perceived work that a lot of the time managers and leaders think is happening it's it's the actual real world 
work that's taking place. And actually, if we can deliver, like you say, training that's properly designed to get the results and to get the behavioral change that we want, then that really does take in, it does take some thinking about because otherwise it's, it's a lot like marketing you're just throwing a load of spaghetti at the wall and trying to work out what's going to stick which I, I, a lot of training does i think that's why we don't often go past level two so level for evaluation that's another thing about it you bake it in from the start so you're not just waiting to do a test at the end you're doing it formatively as you go through mm-hmm. um but evaluation level one is and we'll compare it to stuff we, we know so uh, level one is like reaction so that's just like did people like it did they attend attendance lists so that's drive cpc that's level one evaluation mm-hmm. uh, level two would be if they put a mandatory test in it that would be level two level three would be changing behaviors well that's hard now because it's it's after the course you're gonna have to get line managers involved down the road to see actually did behaviors actually change or did they just pass a test and then level four you, is going to you have to get a few people involved. It's going to be much further down the road because what we did, did it actually change a business outcome? And so that's why everything, a lot of things tend to stop at level two because that's what suits the educational industry, if you like. And it suits employers because they might get a box tick and all the rest of it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy, that stuff. And a lot of people will cite driver CPC. The big problem with it is because it hasn't got a test. But if you think about why it hasn't got a test... When it came out in 2008, 2009, there was a driver shortage then. You know, that's why when all this Ferrari about it in the last sort of six months, for someone who's been in the industry for a long while, you have, it was like watching a car crash happen in really slow motion because it's been going on for donkey's years, not a new thing. Um, So when it came in driver CPC, they realised, look, we don't want to make this a point where people could pass and fail because they've already got a licence. So what we ended up with, well, we're only going to have an attendance list. We're only going to have a feedback form. Well, how do we make sure people learn stuff? Well, I'll tell you what, we'll just keep them there for seven hours. They should learn something in seven hours. They could learn it if they wanted to. But what you've created, I don't know any other qualification. You might be able to enlighten me. I don't know any other qualification where duration is seen as as one of the criteria for it, other than maybe a SAS who dares wins test or something. But other than that, there's nothing, is there? You know? <laughs> well, no, it's, a, it's, ab- it's absolutely bonkers. There's it's a more um, attrition, doesn't it? Some sessions, you know. Yeah. The um, first aid training is measured by the time that it's delivered. So the expectation oh, is hard, yeah. it's a it's a six hour day. But there are there is a formal test. There is a formal test yeah, you have to yeah. demonstrate learning, and there are skills evaluations with the instructor as well. So right, yeah. people people need to demonstrate those. So there is. And I, I think how they differentiate the timings is more around the levels because um, they class a basic first aid level two at three hours, and then they do the uh, emergency first aid at work, which is a level three, is a, is a day, and there's different learning outcomes yeah. and there's different skills evaluations and those kinds of things. So, but it sounds the, well, isn't it? You're doing a formal test, you know. The, yeah, they've 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 aligned the level of the qualification against the time spent doing it. So there is some method. Uh, and thought process that's clearly sort of gone into um, got, gone into the way that they've designed it and it's important that people do skills evaluation but what I find baffling what I find baffling is the 
the emergency first aid at work is a six hour qualification. It's a six hour course. Yeah. But drivers for driver CPC, they've actually had to add an extra hours worth of work to the emergency first aid qualification to meet the criteria for driver CPC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, not, you know, I was involved for a long time, not sort of bad mouth driver CPC, training providers and organisations. There are some really good examples. Um, it's just when it's really generic and it has to be like, you know, you can see it's been spun out but there's some where where it really works and where it's is where it's really relevant so where organizations have used the opportunity to say look we want to achieve these things these are policies that we need people to know about we want to create our training based on that so you, you make the training fit the the organizational goals rather than the other way around so you know that's that, that's that's been our that's been absolutely our goal as an organization we We've looked to try and work together with our clients to create courses that are really meaningful for them. Um, you know, at the moment, at the moment we're developing, a, and it's the first time we've done it, but we think it's the right way to go. So I struggle to see the commercial aspect of delivering an in-person, an in-person induction followed by a driver assessment as a CPC course, because commercially I couldn't make it stack up based on what people were willing to pay for a driver yeah. CPC against um against the actual um you know number of people that we could train but we have had a couple of clients that have committed to us to say i've kind of found the sweet spot of we've got the right trainer to deliver it they need to deliver it anyway they'll pay the additional money because of the value they're getting yeah. um and we've just found that sweet spot where we where we're developing that and i think that's a you know we, we're doing essentially um, a half day theory of safety and uh, vehicle um, sort of vehicle legislation so to speak is like a half day initial and then we can do it with two people and then we can do a half day practical followed the following morning by the other driver doing the half day practical and you get sort of two drivers done in a day and a half yeah and um, I think that's um what driver CPC should be, if that makes yeah. sense. In my head, that's absolutely what it should be. You know, yeah, no, it gets sound, the outcomes. That does sound good, Pete. Yeah, it does sound good. Because I think that's the, the downside of um, statutory training. The good side, the upside is everyone's got to do it. It raises all boats. But the downside of that is that it also commoditizes training. So it mm. gets people, it's like a race to the bottom. Field for, well, if we've got to do it, how cheaply can I do it? And then when you when you do that, you, you strip away all the value, like you've just explained, yeah. you know, what it could be, look what you could have got, you know. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, um, well, I, I don't know, the, it, it baffles me being in an industry where people are able to pay £35 for a day's worth of training, including upload fees and what have you. It's just, um, it's just absolutely, absolutely baffling. It's unlike anything I, I, I can even comprehend, you know. So, um, Awesome, awesome. We're running out of time, so I want to move on to tell me, tell me what your favourite book is. Tell me your favourite book or, or oh, your top three favourite books. Yeah, I've, I've got a few here, so it's struggling to me. But there's there's one that I um, there's one that I read a few years ago, and quite a few of mine are fairly old, if I'm honest. Um, okay. But but um, I read a book by John Kay called Obliquity, and yeah, I had to look up what I meant as well, but. Uh, it's um, he's an economist, John Kay, and it was basically the principle of sometimes you have to go the long route to get to the end result you're looking for. He's got loads of examples in a book, and I wish I'd, I wish I'd have thought it through a bit more. But essentially, it means that sometimes the shortest route between two points isn't a straight line. 
mm-hmm. you have to go around houses to get to that. Yeah. A lot of that's just, you know, dealing with people and, and whatnot. But yeah, Obliquity by John Kay, I like that. Um, when I was first, you know, getting into a sort of senior management role, I read a lot of sort of management gurus and experts. And Peter, a lot of people would be aware of Peter Drucker, who was a, a, like the godfather or, you know, of management thinking. And he, he's largely... Um, credited with uh, management by objectives so you got him to blame for all the things that are set in people's pdrs you know you objective. <laughs> so management by objectives also smart is one of his things that gets put to him but there's a a, a quote i really like of his which is efficiency is doing things right effectiveness is doing the right things and i just thought that's really neat and you have to think about it and you like, and quite often in peter drucker's books you spend a lot of time just staring into the middle distance, trying to really unpack what he said. It's like really rich, the writing, and you get a lot from it. But um, I thought that because you can, you know, we're in an age of getting, you know, more stuff, more stuff, next thing, next thing, next thing. But actually, are we doing the right things? I think is what I took from that. Um, What else did I have? Um, Yes, there's a compendium of his work called The Essential Drucker. Really, really good. And then from him, I found another guy called um, Charles Handy, who's a sort of philosopher, but also into management and organisational behaviour. You know, you know, where you have operations and sales pulling against each other in a, in a normal sales structure, all that sort of explained in, in his books. And I came to, to his work quite late for, for him, as it turned out, because his last book was the first book I read. Um, he died in 2018, Charles Handy, but he wrote a book called The Second Curve, which is, you know, about sort of before your, your current thing's done, you want to start thinking about your next thing sort of thing. And, Love that. and, you know, people sort of, as we get older, we'll probably have more of a portfolio lifestyle where we do a bit of this, a bit of that. We might do a bit of charity work. You know, it's all stuff for the self rather than, you know, growing up in a time where it was just like work harder, work faster, turn up every day, you know, all that. You know, and there's lots to be said for all that, don't get me wrong, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's a bit more that. And um, so they're quite older, you know, older books, older guys and that. Um, one that I sort of read a lot when I was sort of um, took over the training business was a book called Business Model Generator, a bit more contemporary, I suppose, um, by Alex Ostervalder. I've probably done his, murdered his name there, but... Uh, <laughs> And that's all about, you know, like different business models. So, you know, how they used to sell razors and then the blades, and then now you get the razors for virtually free, but the blades cost loads of money. Or Uber. Well, there's no difference to Uber and a traditional taxi, but actually now the platform delivers all the value, doesn't it? Really, that sort of thing's all that about. Uh, and then if it's something on um, instructional design, there's a book called uh, Design for How People Learn by Julie Durkin, Dirksen. That's that's really good if you if you're interested in that as well. So I've got loads of them. What about yourself? So I've got three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's um do you know what? I've not read or heard of any of those. So what I'm gonna do for for the listeners, Keith, could you email me a list over and I'll add it to the show notes for people to go and have a look, including including me. But I've been on I've been on Audible for seven years now. Yeah. And I've been getting a book a month for seven years, yeah. every month without fail. Yeah. I've got I've got some Audible library of like amazing yeah. stuff, and um, I think of um, what what sort of springs to mind. There's some of my standout ones. I really liked um, I really liked Stephen Bartlett, Happy Sexy Millionaire. 
Oh, right. I've not read that, no. That's a great book. That's a great, great book. Um, great listen. I'm, um, what am I listening to at the moment? It's, um, I'm re-listening to This Is Marketing by uh, Seth Godin. I quite oh, like Seth okay, Godin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I kind of, I, I kind of mess around with a few different things. So I've, I've just listened to Kim Scott, Radical Candor. That's about giving like really honest feedback to people. <laughs> yeah, I always struggle with that. So yeah. Um, as radical as they suggest anyway. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I've listened to Darren Brown, Happy, recently. So I've, I've, I've gone for a lot more philosophical. Over the last year, I've gone some... Yeah. some really philosophical stuff uh which includes uh yeah happy by Darren brown and before and laughter by jimmy carr that's not what you'd expect it to be it's a fantastic book is it yeah 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 it's not, is it autobiography then is it what? uh before and laughter is a bit of an autobiography but yeah. it also covers a lot of it so he's done what's a lot of nlp so neuro-linguistic programming oh, really? yeah. which i'm i'm really into I've sort of been on a journey the last 12 months with that. Um, is that also, is that sort of like general mind tricks? Is it all that business? <laughs> a little bit, yeah, a little bit. It's a, um, it's a bit about, so NLP is about understanding what, what people would call the patterns that we run. So as individuals, we, we run patterns based on all of the experiences we've had through our upbringing, through our friends, through the people we interact with on a daily yeah. basis, the different jobs we've done. So we have this pattern, which is um, essentially, it kind of tells us this story all the time, doesn't it? And um, NLP is about recognising that voice. Um, and it's uh, about essentially moving away from having a pattern to having like this really, really properly open-minded thought process around the way people treat you, the way people speak to you, understanding that it's about them and it's not about you, that they're running their own pattern um, based on the way that they interact with things. It's it's just, yes, it's absolutely opened my mind. It's oh, blown well, my brain. If, you got, if you've got some I can read in return, then I'll, I'll definitely drop you these. Oh, that'd be great, mate, yeah. Definitely, definitely, no worries at all. So um, we've moved on to just the final thing, and I, I am very conscious that I'm sort of at my time limits with you um, for you, uh, for the certainly the time I booked with this, so apologies for that, Keith. But your final thing, tell us a bit about the DGSA Academy. Um, well, DGSA Academy is really just a vehicle for me to sort of do a bit about instructional design, a bit about uh, dangerous goods, where the two things come together. I, I, the only, I work for others freelance on both of those things, uh, but the only thing I do for myself is the DGSA Academy. So I only do one course, and it's for preparation for one qualification, which is the DGSA qualification dangerous good safety advisor uh, and that is that's it really you know I, I sort of started it because I thought I've done my DGSA you have to do it every five years I've done it myself with other providers and uh, I thought you know I could bring you know I, could, I, I think I could make that better for, for individuals going through it offer more support so as well as a course I do a bit of one-to-one -one coaching after the course so it's sort of individualised, so it's not it's not just a sheep dip for the course. We all learn and retain different things. So when they do their mock exams, then the, the feedback is all one-to-one. -one. Uh, and uh, I do it one course virtually, like, like we're doing, uh, and another one uh, in Coventry. The, the exams are every quarter, so I only do like two courses every quarter for, for that. Um, but yes, yeah, W, what, do you say the W's anymore? 
djsacademy.co.uk don't need to say it here. Yeah, no, absolutely. So <laughs> what I would say is if if you want to learn DGSA, if you want to become a DGSA and you want to learn from an expert trainer um, who is an expert at, at the actual training and not just a subject matter as well, then um, it's worth giving you a shout then, Keith. I wondered whose name are you going to give now? I thought, who's he got for this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that, I, I think that's, that's part of it, is the technical subjects, they become very technical very quick but very deep very quickly and i think there's better ways to learn things sometimes yeah fantastic so i think uh, i'm on for that how do um, apart from the djsaacademy.co.uk um how else do people find you keith linkedin is that a good place to yeah so I, I don't really do much social i know you're sort of all over it you're a great marketeer i've learned a lot from you but um <laughs> i don't really do much you can find me on linkedin and um uh, or, or, or through my um, email address, Keith at Adneti, which I'll, I'll give you the address for. Uh, but yeah, mainly LinkedIn or through the website. Yeah. I'll add, if you um, send me the link over um, from the DJS Academy, I'll add that to the show notes as well for people, people oh, right, so they can come and find Thank you. Thank you very much, yeah. Keith, you've been an absolute star, mate. Thank you very much for joining me on the great podcast. Time. Thank you, Pete. Really Thank appreciate it. All the best. Okay. Thank Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoy it. And um, yeah, catch you all on the next one. I really hope you loved today's episode. And if you did, please make sure you subscribe and listen out for future episodes too. Please do share it across your social media channels. We hope to reach more and help more people. If you want to find out more about me, my name's Pete Rushmer. You'll find me across any social media channel and my business, Flagship Partners. And we're your partners in success across your business. Thank you. See you again soon.